We're in John chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 16 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have it in front of you, whether it be an electronic version or a paper version, it'll be on the screen for you as we read together. As Brian referenced earlier, it is Palm Sunday, and it's not a Sunday where we give each other high fives or shake each other's hands twice. That's kind of a bad pastor's joke. Um, But Palm Sunday is the acknowledgement of Jesus riding into Jerusalem as the king of Israel, long-awaited king in the line of David, who would rule and govern his people well. And so we find that story recounted for us in John chapter 12 and we want to read it together and then we'll come back and take a look at what it says to us today. John chapter 12 beginning in verse 1, John says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, was this ointment not, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. Then verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Listen, we live in a culture that's infatuated with superheroes, don't we? It seems like every summer and every winter, right, the big holiday blockbuster seasons, whenever movies roll off the cutting room floors and they're released into theaters around our nation, it seems like there's always another rendition of some superhero story from Marvel or DC, right? You got Justice League characters rolling out onto the theater screens. You got uh, X-Men rolling out onto onto the theater screens. You got Captain America with a glorified trash can lid He's like taking down alien spaceships, right, by throwing that thing out there at them, right? And we're infatuated with these superhero stories, right? I'm just waiting for the Wonder Woman movie to come out. She's an interesting character to me, right? You got Wonder Woman who's flying around in this invisible jet, right? But she's, she's not invisible, right? She's seated in a seated position, and so she's flying through the air in a seated position. So you would think that would tip somebody off, right? There's this random woman flying through the air in a seated position. Like something weird is going on there, right? Not sure what's happening, but something Something's happening, right? So super, superheroes have always captivated our imaginations from the time that we were young. I can remember waking up on Saturday mornings and sitting in front of the television, just waiting for like the, the screen to move from the colored bars. 
Some of you are old enough to remember that, right? The colored bars that were on to where it actually began to show programming, right? And waiting for the, the Justice League and waiting for Batman and Superman and Robin and all those characters to fly onto the screen and like kick all the evil bad guys off of the place, the, the, the face of the planet, exile them to some other planet and then justice would rule the day, right? It's always captivated our attentions. It's always captivated our imaginations, and I think there's a reason for that it's because there's some within all of us there's a longing for someone who would come to right all the wrongs. There's a longing for someone who would come to overthrow all of our enemies, to remove all the evil and injustice in the world. There's a longing that we all have for things that are broken to be fixed and things that are distorted to be put right. There's a longing that we all have for that and this text touches on that longing within our hearts. This text gets to the very heart of the issue when it comes to that desire. As it speaks of a king who, would come, who, who comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and palm branches being waved. Not quite an invisible jet, all right, but a donkey nonetheless. As it speaks about this long-awaited king who would come to right all the wrongs and restore all the brokenness and to heal all the diseases and to put everything that had been broken right. And this text in John chapter 12 speaks of this Jesus who would ride in, who was the long-awaited king from the line of David, who would rule with righteousness and justice and peace. And yet as he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and they're waving palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, only five days later, the cries of exaltation would turn to cries for crucifixion. You see, on Sunday, they're crying out for Jesus to deliver them, and yet on Friday, they're crying out for his death. On Sunday, they're crying out with blessing Jesus, and yet on Friday, Jesus is being beaten and tortured and ultimately crucified. And the question that I, uh, we wrestle with whenever we come to this text is we read John chapter 12 and then you read the rest of the story to John chapter 19. It's like what happened over the course of those five days and seven chapters to move them from cries for, 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 of exaltation and praise now to cries of crucifixion. And don't miss this. What moves them over the course of those five days and seven chapters from exaltation to crucifixion is their expectations. It's their expectations, right? To understand really what's going on here, you gotta step back a little bit and understand some of the historical and cultural and political context that frames up what John writes here in John chapter 12 down through verse 19. So I wanna take a moment and do that for you and we're gonna dig into this and see how our day is really not a whole lot different than theirs. Right, see the land of Palestine, the land, the, the little strip of land we call Israel has always been a hot spot. Right? It's not just since Israel was recognized as an autonomous nation after World War II. No, it's always throughout its history been a hot spot. It's always been a highly contested little strip of land there in the Middle East. And it's always had a significant role in global affairs. See, in 586 BC, before Jesus, the Babylonians roll into Jerusalem. God raises them up to come in and, and, and basically judges people on account of their rebellion and sin. And the Babylonians come come in and they conquer the land of Israel and they draw away the inhabitants into captivity where they would stay for a generation. 
until they were, some of them were able to return home. Now the Babylonians retained control over Israel until the Persians came in and defeated the Babylonians. Right, so the Persians roll in, they defeat the Babylonians and now they have control of all of Babylon's territories and jurisdiction. So they're in control of Israel. Then Alexander the Great comes in and conquers the Persians. And Alexander the Great now has control of the land of Israel. Then Alexander the Great dies, his, his, his followers couldn't get straight on who was gonna be his successor and so his kingdom is divided into two. And Israel lies kind of within the, the, the middle ground and continues to be a contested spot between these two kingdoms that rose out of the wake of Alexander the Great's death. And so Israel continues to bounce back and forth and has foreign occupation and foreign occupiers and foreign rule over the course of these years. Until somewhere about, 100 year, about 150 years before Jesus' birth, there was a revolt by the Jewish people called the Maccabee, Maccabean Revolt. And they basically rose up and they defeated those successors of Alexander the Great and they took back uh, control and independence and Israel had a, a season, about a 100 year season called the Hasmonean Dynasty in which she had autonomy and independence and she ruled herself until in 63 BC, the general, Roman General Pompey comes in, crushes the people and occupies the city and it comes under Roman control. See, the land of Israel has always been a hot spot and a highly contested piece of land. So for the better part of six centuries, Israel was under foreign rule with foreign occupiers being governed by kings who were situated miles and miles and miles and miles away from them. And yet, though, and yet the Israelites, the Jewish people had the Hebrew scriptures which promised that one day God would send a deliverer that one day God would send someone to liberate, that God would send one day to crush all of his enemies and rule in righteousness and justice and peace. He would overthrow all of their occupiers and he would reign and rule over his people. It would be a good and generous and gracious rule over his people. So the Israelites continued to look for that day and long for that day and desire that day and dream of that day when they'd be free from foreign occupation, they'd be free from foreign kings. And so when Jesus rides into town, he's riding into a highly politically charged environment that's filled with people who had great expectations of what this liberator, what this Messiah would do whenever he showed up onto the scene. In fact, John says that he rides in on the colt, on the foal, on the foal, foal, the colt, kind of mixed those two words together, on this young donkey, right? He rides into town on the donkey as a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. He says, fear not, O Israel. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so they find this in Zechariah chapter nine. They believe that when the Messiah comes, the liberator comes, the king comes, he's gonna be riding on this donkey into town. And, it, and Jesus sends his disciples to untie this, this donkey and he rides into town on the donkey in a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter nine. But Isaiah chapter nine, uh, Zechariah chapter nine, but it doesn't stop there. You go on to verse 10, listen to what it says in Zechariah chapter nine, verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. In other words, when this 
this liberator, this Messiah rides in on this donkey. He's going to bring an end to war. He's gonna bring an end to conflict. He's gonna cut off the chariots and the war horses. There won't be any opposition any longer. Our enemies will be vanquished and overthrown. He will set up his rule and his throne. He will govern from the river Euphrates to the end of the earth. All the nations would come under his authority and he would rule and it would be a rule of peace. So Jesus is riding into town on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 into this highly politically charged context in which the people want the Romans dismissed and they want to be free from them. And they think that he's gonna come and conquer them and be their king and establish this reign of peace. It's a very nationalistic, politically charged environment. And think about what Jesus has just done, right? He's just raised a guy from the dead, okay? Lazarus was dead, now he's alive, reclining at the table with all the rest of Jesus' followers. You imagine that scene, right? Lazarus is not the guy you want at your dinner party because he can always top your story, right? No matter what story you come out with, he's like, yeah, I was dead. (laughs) Now I'm not. (laughs) Case closed, right? You win, okay? Right, so he's just raised a guy from the dead. He's been doing all these miracles, performing all these miracles. He's been teaching about the coming kingdom. And he rides in the town in fulfillment of Isaiah cha- or Zechariah chapter nine. And the people cry out, Hosanna. Now we sing that song, don't we? We, see, we hear that, that word, but we don't oftentimes really even know what it means. But it means this, it means, it means literally translated, save, I pray. In other words, deliver us, rescue us, save us. And they're asking for him to deliver them from Roman occupation, from Roman rule, to establish this reign of peace. God, would you change what's going on around us? So then they pick up palm branches and begin to wave them as they cry out, save, deliver, rescue. And they begin to wave these palm branches. Now, palm branches don't appear to be very threatening, do they? They can't, I don't know if you've ever run your finger along one, it can, can cut you. Right? But if they're waving machetes and machine guns, it might, be a li- it might feel a little more threatening of an environment. But they're waving these palm branches, but why? Remember the Maccabean revolt I told you about earlier? Whenever the Jewish people regained some autonomy and independence for, for a little over a generation? There was one guy who was crucial in that revolt. His name was Simon the Maccabee. And whenever Simon pushes out the foreign occupiers, he comes back into town, as he rides back into town, he's greeted with songs and music, like a big parade's going on, and palm branches that they are waving. In fact, palm branches from that, kind of from that point forward became one of the nationalistic symbols of Israel. It began to be stamped on their coins. So whenever the Romans came in, they were like, we don't recognize you as our rulers, and so we're not gonna use your coinage, we're gonna stamp our own, instead of sort of stamping coins with palm branches. It's a very nationalistic Israelite, Jewish symbol and so they're but basically what they're saying is this we want somebody to liberate us like Simon did back in the day you remember how that went down we want that to go down now we want that kind of liberation we want that kind of freedom from occupation they're thinking Jesus is riding in as their William Wallace right like they're getting ready for a whole Braveheart scene to go down right now and yet Jesus when he comes into town he doesn't set up recruiting stations He doesn't fill an army. He doesn't initiate boot camps. He doesn't begin to fire missiles and scramble aircraft. He doesn't deploy warships into the Mediterranean. He doesn't do any of that. Because when Jesus rides into town on a donkey, 
He's saying, I am your king, but not that kind of king, at least not yet. Because I have a cup to drink and I have a cross to bear. I need to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin and I'll be punished as I stretch my arms out and bear the full weight of all of your shame and all of your guilt. See, the kind of king they wanted, Jesus says, he's, he's not that kind of king, at least not yet. See, they wanted a king who would change their circumstances. They wanted a king who would run out the foreign occupiers. They didn't like the way their life was going and they wanted someone to do something about it. Doesn't sound all that different from my life sometimes. It doesn't sound all that different from your life, I would imagine sometimes, because we all have dreams and desires, don't we? We have dreams and desires that at times go unfulfilled. We have longings that we don't find to be satisfied. And so whenever those dreams and desires can go unfulfilled and unsatisfied, they turn into demands. And when those demands go unmet in our lives, oftentimes we check out, right? We put the palm branch down, we cut the song short and we go back home and we open up a carton of bluebell and we sit on the couch with a spoon and we just try and numb ourselves with enough television to make us forget about all the pain. Oftentimes we, like they, have these expectations these expectations for Jesus to come and do something that he's not yet ready to do. And so what do we do whenever that happens in our lives? How do we respond whenever there are unfulfilled expectations for us? See, some of you may have been, not been in a church in a long time, and it's maybe your first time in church, and because some of you, maybe you grew up in church and maybe you walked away from the church because there was some of those unfulfilled expectations. You were thinking God was going to do this, and when he didn't do this, right, whenever he didn't provide that relationship to set you free from that loneliness that you were experiencing, whenever he didn't provide that promotion or that higher paying job, when you weren't driving a Beamer or a Bentley or a Benz, right, parking it in a three-car garage, Right, whenever those things that you were expecting God to do did not materialize, you laid the palm branch down and you went home. And so this morning, what I want us to do is try and wrap our minds around what do we do whenever there's these unmet desires, these unfulfilled desires, these unmet longings, the demands that, they, that, that, that God seems to be silent about. How do we respond? And I want to press on that and Three, this one big idea in three different ways. And the big idea is this, is that you and I need to recognize that the king that we want is not always the king that we need. The king that we want is not always the king that we need. And I think you see that in at least three ways. The first one is this. There is a deliverance we need that is greater than the deliverance that we want. I need to settle in on some of us this morning. There is a deliverance that we need that is greater than the deliverance that we want oftentimes from our circumstances. See, there are things in this world that are worse than Rome. Have you, have you learned that yet? There, there are things in this world that are worse than your external circumstances. There are enemies that are greater than Rome. 
There are far, one of the things we need to come to terms with as when we think about this idea is this, is there are far worse things in us than there are around us. And if you haven't recognized that yet, then the cross will never thrill you. It will never captivate you. It will never change you. The grace of God will always be kind of benign in your life. You'll hear about it, but it'll never have any effect because you believe that the things that most threaten you most are things outside of you, not the things inside of you. There are far worse things inside of me than there are outside of me. There are far worse things in my past even in my present, my pride, my prejudice at times. There are things in me that have to be rooted out. There's lust and anger and greed and foolishness. You know what the Bible says a fool is? The Bible says a fool is an individual who is so wise in their own eyes that they don't even recognize when they're causing all kinds of damage and destruction in their lives and the lives of those who are around them. That's what a fool is in the Bible. And oftentimes, fools end up in very cyclical patterns of behavior in which they're just destroying their lives and the lives of those who are closest to them, but they don't see it because they're, they don't see any way that they could be wrong. That's foolishness, and there are patterns of cyclical foolishness, and maybe some of you have been in that for a while, and you haven't yet seen there's worse things inside of you than there are outside of you. There's cruelty and coldness, there's apathy, there's hard-heartedness, there's rebellion, there's the fear of man that so occupies your heart that you're more worried about offending other individuals than you are about honoring and glorifying God. See, there are things that, are, that have deep, deep roots set in our lives. Not to mention those issues of character, but to mention the enemies who are against us we have Satan who stands to constantly accuse and who wants to devour us. And we have death that threatens to end us forever. See, there are far greater enemies than Rome. Far greater enemies than Rome. And Jesus has come to forgive us and free us. Come to forgive us by his death and free us by his resurrection from our cruelty, from our apathy, from our foolishness, from our lust, from our pride, from our anger, from our greed, from all these things that we see circulating in our heart. And he's come to still the accusations and silence the mouth of Satan against us. And he's come to show us that even death cannot put a final end to us. That's the kind of king he's come to be in his first advent. And yet many of us, we think that if we could just be delivered from our external circumstances, then our life would be fulfilling. We would have all the things that we desire and all the things that we dream of. And yet if Jesus only comes to bring us deliverance from our external circumstances, it's like he's coming to hand us a popsicle on a 110 degree day. Eventually that sucker's gonna melt or you're gonna consume it all and be left with nothing for all of eternity. That's all he's come to bring, but what Jesus has come to do is he's come to forgive us of all those things that are within us and begin to change us from the inside out as the Holy Spirit is now the down payment of our inheritance for those of us who are in Christ. So he begins to bring change from the inside out so that our, that our cruelty turns to compassion, that our lust begins to transition to love, that our greed begins to change over to generosity. Do you see that? The Holy Spirit begins to unpack his bags in our hearts and he begins to settle in and begins to change us from the inside out. 
so that through Jesus' death, the Old Testament talked about this over and over and over again. See, the, 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 the people of Israel, they had expectations on Jesus that he was gonna come as this conquering king, not as a suffering servant. Both of those ideas are in the Old Testament. One is reserved for his second advent and one was fulfilled in his first advent. So in Isaiah chapter 53, when it says, we all like sheep have gone astray and each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, that surely he has borne our griefs so that we might be forgiven and the Holy Spirit comes in that we might be free. See, right now, some of us in this room, some of us in this room, we've spent the last season of our lives, maybe all of our lives, blaming all of our difficulties on external circumstances or other people, not recognizing that the problem lies within, not without. And we want Jesus to deliver us from all our external circumstances. We want Jesus to change things around us, but not in us. But that's where it starts. That's where it starts. In fact, some of us will never know what freedom is until we come to terms with that truth that there's a great a deliverance that we need that's greater than the one that we want. It's greater than the one we want. And we, so we stop blaming other people for all of our problems. We stop blaming our external circumstances for all of our problems. But we begin to see how God wants to bring about transformation and change in our lives starting on the inside and working itself out to the outside. And there's often times when God leaves us in certain circumstances because he wants to show us the kind of change that's needed in our lives, right? Sometimes with a rebellious child that's going wayward and running headlong away from the word and the will and the ways of God. And we pray for that rebellious child oftentimes because we just want to kind of grab control again in their life. And yet sometimes God is showing us that the very issue, that, 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 that what he wants to do is not just give us, he doesn't want to give us control over our child, but he wants to conform us to the image of his son. Sometimes in difficult relationships or in difficult job circumstances or in dif- different, difficult situations we might find ourselves in, God, we pray and pray and pray, God, deliver me from this, and God leaves us there to, for that situation to function like a mirror in our lives to show us the things inside that need to change. Where might that be the case for you this morning? Where might God be leaving you in certain circumstances or situations or seasons because he wants to show you that there's work that needs to be done in here? Second second way this this idea works itself out is this, is that one of the things, when, when, when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, right? And we have them, don't we? We drive down the highway and we see billboards for church services that have like these, you know, family of five running through a meadow of daisies with wildflowers and right, it says, consider Jesus and they're all smiling and happy. It doesn't show the shot of them at dinner table with spaghetti in their hair and kids screaming. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we also need to learn not to expect the fullness of heaven on earth. Don't expect the fullness of heaven on earth. See, some of us has a vi- have a vision for life that is what theologians would call an over-realized eschatology. Now, those are big words, right? 
And some of you, when you hear the word eschatology, it kind of scares you a little bit. You get a little bit frightened because what you think of is like Kirk Cameron movies, like the Left Behind series, you know, and you start thinking about charts and televangelists and golden thrones and purple carpet and you're just like cringing somewhere inside. But the word eschatology just means this, it means study of the last things. And in other words, it's a study of how God is going to take all the brokenness of this world and turn them into something that is beautiful that lasts forever. That lasts forever. You see, the expectations that we have and the desires and longings that we have for a disappointment, resistance, and opposition, and pain-free life, you know what those are? Those are longings for heaven. They're longings for heaven. And heaven is not here yet. It's not, it's not that it won't be here one day because one day Jesus will come. He will come and he will right every wrong and he will restore all the brokenness and pain that you have walked through personally in your life. He will. And for all those who trust and treasure in him, they will stand before him for all of eternity and just the, 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 the sight of him in his fullness and glory will bring healing to every hurt that they've ever tasted or experienced in this world. That day's coming, but it's not here yet. It's one of the reasons I think that we are fascinated as well, not only by superheroes, but also by fairy tales. By fairy tales. You ever read great, great, great literature, great fairy tales? Right, they, they all have a similar thread to them, don't they? They start with everything being at right and at peace. And then somehow that peace and that, that, that rightness about the world gets disrupted and broken and things begin to unravel. And things begin to unravel until it reaches a climax in which somebody comes and begins to tie the threads back together. And then ultimately at the end of the story, right, everyone's walking off into the sunset, holding hands, whistling, skipping, and singing as they move toward their what? Happily ever after. See, happily ever after is coming. That's why fairy tales grip us the way that they do. Because we want it to be true so desperately because one day it will be. And those, are, those are seeds of heaven that God has planted within our hearts. But that day is not this day. This, in this day, we still grieve. In this day, we still have to grind it out some days, don't we? Right? Some of you are in a season of grinding it out right now. In this, day, in this day, we still hurt. There's still pain. There's still hardship. There's still heartache. There's still breakups and there's still divorces and there's still adultery and there's still embezzlement and there's still all kinds of sin and folly that emanates from the human heart in this day. But there is a happily ever after coming. As one of my friends said it, he said there's a never ending happy ending that's over the horizon and one day Jesus will return to bring it all to completion. But one of the things you and I have to wrestle with and come to terms with is not to expect that today. Yes, there is power. Yes, there is transformation. Yes, there is change. But you in this life will never be free completely because the, the flesh will continue. You'll continue to war against the flesh day after day after day after day. And some of us, when we come to Christ, we come with these false expectations that from day one, man, I, my life is gonna be like butterflies and rainbows skipping through the meadows of wildflowers and blue bonnets and those little pink and white ones that grow alongside the Interstate 30 in Rockwall. Those are our expectations. 
And yet Paul says in his letters, he talked about how he was shipwrecked and he was beaten and he was flogged and he was persecuted. Several times he was left for dead and thought he was going to die, thought he was going to drown. It doesn't sound like rainbows and butterflies and eyelash kisses, right? Because in this world, we will have pain. We will have sorrow. We will have hardship and difficulty. But take heart because Jesus says, I've overcome it and one day I will renew it all. So don't expect heaven on earth. And then finally, finally, not only do we have a deliverance that that we need that's greater than the one that we want and not only do we have to learn to wrestle with the expectations of wanting heaven now as opposed to hoping for it whenever Jesus returns. But also we need to learn we need to learn to submit our agenda to Jesus' rule. Submit our agenda to Jesus' rule. Listen, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they had an agenda for him, didn't they? And it was all based upon their understanding of what would take place whenever the Messiah arrived through the reading of these texts that described his second coming, not his first. They had an agenda, scripted out. They wanted to hand it to him. The problem with Jesus is this. Right? Is that Jesus is the king of all creation and the king of all creation isn't taking proposals. Right? Rather, he's ruling in providence. Right? You know what the word providence means? It's basically this. If you take a, the thread of God's goodness and the thread of God's sovereignty and you bring and tie them together and you create a knot, that knot is the providence of God. It's God governing everything and he's in control of all things for our good. Right? So he has a plan. He has purposes that he's working out. And so often we want to take our agenda, write it out and script it out and submit it to Jesus. I know you don't do that. I have. Right? There have been seasons in my life where I've scripted out my agenda and come before God and said, here you go. I know that you were struggling, but here's my proposal. Right? Several years ago, when I, back in my early 20s, it's hard to say that these days, but back in my early 20s, I was serving at a, a, a local church in central Louisiana. I was a youth pastor there. I was an interim student pastor there, and so that was kind of the guy in between the two full-time guys who were gonna come as the student pastor. Uh, one had left, I stepped into that role, they were looking for somebody else, and so I submitted my resume as a candidate for that full-time role. Uh, and so they had all these resumes come in and the, the search committee, they processed through all the resumes and had them all out there on the table and they eventually narrowed it down to myself and one other candidate, right? And I thought I had a little inside track, right? Because I was there, I knew the people, um, things were going well, the ministry was growing, all these kinds of things. And so I, I, we, Karen and I, we just gotten married and we began to envision our life there for the next 20 years, Right, we begin to envision what it would look like to have kids there, raise a family there, serve in that church, be a part of that community and that fabric of that community over the course of the next 20, 30 years. And then the pastor took us to lunch one day after service on a Sunday morning and he sat us down and he said, I just wanna let you know, the search committee has chosen the other guy. And in that moment, the agenda that I had, that I was proposing to God, Right? Here we are, like, this is where we're gonna be, God, right? God said no. No. And I could, I'll say this in a moment, it was deeply painful. And I'm not too big to tell you that I cried, right? I wept. 
because I loved those students and I loved that church and I loved those people. But one of the things I say all the time to people is that things are so much clearer in the rearview mirror than they are through the windshield, aren't they? And so often whenever we bring our agenda before God and we say, God, here's what you need to do, we're dismissing the fact that he sees and knows everything. He sees and knows everything. And as painful as it was in that moment to submit my proposal to God and him say, listen, I'm gonna rule in providence. Looking back on it now, looking back on it now, I'm grateful for the way God directed and steered and turned and shaped my life through that experience and brought me to where I am today. I don't know if you're grateful, but I I have been. (laughs) To see his hand guiding through that process. What about you? Is there a proposal that you're submitting to God that he's saying no on and that you just need to come in prayer and submission before him to say, God, I know that you're ruling in providence. I wanna trust that. I don't, even though I don't understand what's going on right now, I can't make heads or tails of it. It doesn't make sense to me, but I trust that you are a God who is in control and you are good. And those two things are being tied together always in your heart so I'm gonna trust your providence. What expectations do you have that have gone unmet? Is that you need to see that the deliverance that you needed was greater than the one that you wanted. And maybe there are things today that God is still trying to unearth in you. And that's why he's not changing all these things around you. Maybe for some of us, we need to come to terms with the fact that heaven is then and there, not here and now. And for some of us, maybe we just need to take our agenda and run it through the shredder of God's providence. I want you to know he's a good king. He's a gracious king. He's a just king. He is one who will rule your life gently and humbly but he will rule. Have you submitted to that? Let me pray for us this morning as we close. Father, we know that we don't know. And I pray, God, that you would help us to know that more and more and more over the course of the days and weeks and months ahead to know that we don't know. Father, for those of us in the room who have had expectations of what a relationship with you would be like and how you would fix everything in our lives instantaneously and not progressively over time. God, may we see And maybe consider for the first time today that the reason some of the circumstances are what they are in our lives is because we've constantly been shifting the blame onto them or other people and not seeing that what you're wanting to show us through them is how you're wanting to change us from the inside out. As we turn aside from trying to 
rule our own lives, when we place our lives under the righteous and redemptive rule of Jesus, become citizens of his kingdom and not reigning as kings in our own. And your Holy Spirit moves in and begins to unpack and begins to unearth and unpluck and uproot things in our lives that need to be changed. God, I pray that today we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's work and that if we hear his voice that we would not harden our hearts to it. Father, for those of us in the room who maybe have been expecting heaven here and now without seeing that it's coming then and there, may we continue to look forward to the happily ever after over the horizon, the never ending happy ending. But God, I pray that here and now you would remind us there will be pain, there will be grief, there will be sorrow, there will be sickness, disease. There will be all kinds of relational fractures and fissions, God, but ultimately that you're working to redeem and restore all things and one day everything will be put right. So God, may we have hope in that day. God, may we bring our agendas before you and submit our proposals to your providence knowing that you're good and desire our good. We pray these things in